Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail... Now, Dupria. Oh, oh, dear me. I don't think, I don't think he... he's getting up from that. No. So my, I'm in the way. What is wrong? Wow. The ability to absorb punishment has long been held as a virtue in an athlete. You know, toughness and durability. They call it a strong chin in boxing. But the human body can only absorb so much punishment. And the signs that you're absorbing too much punishment can take a long time to manifest. The rugby world has been rocked by news former All Black Carl Heyman has early onset dementia at age 41. Carl Heyman is one of the all-time great All Black front rowers. He's suspected to be suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, a progressive brain condition which disproportionately affects contact sport athletes, boxers, American football players, and increasingly, rugby players. The landmark legal action being brought against rugby governing bodies by former players suffering brain injuries and its implications for the sport worldwide. Last week, Heyman gave an interview to sports journalist Dylan Cleaver. He spoke about his many demons, the bravery it took to come to terms with the fact that there was something wrong with him, and the class action lawsuit he's joined aimed at improving safety in the sport. So today on the podcast, I'm sitting down with Cleaver to discuss what CTE is, the pending lawsuit whose claimants could number in the hundreds, and what these developments could mean for the future of Aotearoa's national sport. And just a quick heads up, this story does contain references to self-harm and suicide, so please do be aware of that. CTE is... It can only be, at this stage, properly diagnosed post-mortem. There is certain pathology to CTE that makes, I guess, doctors more confident now that they can say you have probable CTE. But at this point, we don't know for sure until the brain is, is tested in death. It is a progressive brain disease, and I'm not quite sure how I can explain it jargon-free, except to say it is... I guess damage in the in the wiring in the um, the grey and white matter of the brain that uh, becomes filled up with something called tau protein. Tau protein seems to be the, uh, for want of a better term, the active ingredient that's doing the damage. What causes it? It seems more and more likely that it's repetitive head injuries. In fact, there are studies that seem to have actually proved the link beyond correlation to something that more equates causation. But there is still debate within the community that I guess we have to acknowledge. Uh, There could be other factors as well as head injuries. There could be societal factors. There could be genetic factors. But the simple thing is, if if you just look solely at that Boston University study... An ongoing study at Boston University, which began in 2015, has studied the brains of former professional and college American football players... At one point, they had 111 brains and 110 of them had CTE. Mm. Even if you take out the inherent biases of that study, the one thing all those people had in common was contact sport and repetitive head injuries. How does it manifest? What are the, what are the symptoms of it in a, in a living human? 
it's part of the um, dementia. Dementia is an umbrella term, okay. right? That covers a whole lot of conditions, and CTE comes under the dementia umbrella. And the symptoms of a like a short term memory loss, terrible mood swings, depression, feelings of anxiety, frustration, and and a big one is isolation. Mm. Actually, and that's when people with CTE who have been very social. Uh, characters all their lives start removing themselves from from social situations seemingly inexplicably but it's because they they can't process uh, new information very well and you know if there's noise coming from different kind of angles it's very very hard for them to pick out conversations and so it's just it's incredibly I guess frustrating brain disease. Mm. You've mentioned a word, an important word, it, it, it seems to me several times so far, which is the word repetitive, repetitive head knocks. Yes. It strikes me that is a crucial part of this. We're not necessarily talking just about isolated big hits, big shots. It is the cumulative eroding effect of taking hundreds upon thousands, upon tens of thousands of tackles and scrums and rucks over the course of a career. Yeah, that's dead right. And I'm glad you brought that out because there is still this connection made that concussion equals CTE and that is being proven to be not the case really. Obviously concussion is not good. I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing the dangers of concussion at all. And concussion is a traumatic head injury and it obviously can lead to problems down the track, but it's not the only precursor to CTE. And sometimes I think people that perhaps haven't had those big, symptomatic concussive hits that have left them in, in kind of la-la land or anything like that, maybe have this false sense of security. So, yeah, it's a very good point you raised that the, the biggest danger is those repetitive sub-concussive hits that can go by unnoticed. It's long been suspected, for obvious reasons, that people who play high-impact contact sports for a long time may pay a price for it. But the issue of CTE really became a big part of the professional sports landscape in the early 2010s, when several American football players in their early 40s committed suicide. The Super Bowl-winning safety Dave Durson took his own life, convinced that the despair he faced was caused in part by the damage he suffered on the football field. The 50-year-old killed himself with a gunshot to the chest. He sent a text message to his ex-wife hours before. He told me he loved me. He was truly sorry and that he loved the kids and that he felt he thinks there was something wrong with his brain on the left side and for me to please get it to the NFL. In 2012, more than 4,000 former professional American football players joined civil lawsuits against the NFL, alleging the league had failed to protect players against the dangers of repeated head injuries. The NFL was eventually ordered to pay compensation and establish an ongoing fund of more than $1 billion, which former players can collect from depending on the severity of their injuries. And this is one of the things that got Dylan Cleaver interested in this issue on a more local level. Because I thought if it was happening in the NFL and certainly to the degree it seemed to be happening, it didn't seem logical that there would be no instances in, in rugby. Australia come back, here it is for Johnny. When we're lifting the cup and jumping around, 
it's just bizarre because I can see my ugly mug there and but just there's just like nothing. That is the former English hooker Steve Thompson speaking in 2020. He's talking there about the 2003 World Cup final which he played in and won. Thompson has early onset dementia and he can't remember a thing about that game. You were a passionate player, you obviously still love the game, but you said you wished you hadn't played professionally the way that you did because of what's happened now. I'd much rather have had my mind now know that I'm definitely going to see my kids grow up, go to university hopefully, weddings, all that sort of stuff, and I'm in limbo that I'm probably not going to see that. In December last year, Thompson became one of eight players to take a class-action lawsuit against World Rugby. The group's lawyer, Richard Boardman, spoke to Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan at the time. Every person involved in this, myself included, has a deep love for the game. But many of these guys, particularly those with early-onset dementia, will require assistance going forward. You know, for many of these guys, by the time they get into their late 40s, 50s, they will be unable to work. They will require close to, if not full-time, health care. And the second objective, why these guys are doing this, is because these problems, we believe, are still happening right now and will continue to happen in the future. Now, many of the players are in their 40s, and this is a key part of the story. Rugby went professional in the mid-90s. Before then, most players, even top-level players, had to juggle training with jobs. When the game went professional, all of a sudden, players could train every day of the week, and training sessions back in those days were notoriously brutal. There was absolutely no idea that even in those trainings, as I keep repeating this word, those subconcussive hits were probably hitting, uh, were probably happening far more often than the players realised. Uh, it would have been, you know, just written off as, oh, yeah, just took a small bang to the head, uh, nothing to it, move on. Just weren't aware of the dangers. Suddenly the volume of rugby uh, ratcheted up a lot. Suddenly the volume of training ratcheted up a lot. And because it was people's livelihoods and professions, the intensity of it um, ramped up. Players got bigger, they got stronger, they got faster. That era was probably the perfect storm for a situation where brain health was compromised. The lawsuit has been brought against, and again, I'm not um, fully in the loop here, okay? So this is just kind of what I've learned through my reporting and through reading. But the lawsuit is um, targeted at World Rugby, the Welsh Rugby Union, the RFU, which is essentially the English Rugby Union, and I think the Scottish Rugby Union. So New Zealand rugby isn't included in that. I don't think French rugby is included in it. What the plaintiffs are arguing is that, or the claimants are arguing, is that those rugby bodies were aware of the dangers around head injuries and long-term brain disease, and they had been aware of it since the 1970s, I believe, that was being discussed at the IRB's top table. And armed with that knowledge, they didn't pass it on to the players. The players were under the impression that if you recovered 
from a concussion, you'd be back to normal and there'd be no follow-on problems with that as long as your, re- your recovery was right. That I guess what they're arguing is, well, actually, rugby knew that there were going to be significant problems with um, head knocks down the track and we weren't warned about that and that's what we needed. Okay, so so they're essentially saying World Rugby administrates this game. This game has inherent safety concerns that can build up over a long period of time. World Rugby has a duty of care, particularly to professional athletes playing that game, and it should have kept them in the loop about information in this area. Yes, you put it far better than I did there, Emil. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. As Dylan mentioned, New Zealand rugby is not involved with the lawsuit at this stage and our ACC scheme means it may never be. But there have been New Zealanders involved with the class action, players who played in Europe, for example, and are now showing signs of early-onset dementia. Players like Carl Heyman. He has been struggling for some time. I think it's you know it's public record that his post-playing career probably um, hasn't been filled with glory. He was sacked by uh, French club Poe for an altercation with his players. He is, uh, went to court and was convicted on domestic abuse charges. And he re- his life really went into a spiral of alcohol abuse. And it stemmed from the fact that he was waking up with constant headaches that never left, terrible memory issues, irritability and and temper and violence issues which were just not part of his makeup uh, he couldn't work out what was going on and and literally thought that he was just going mad so he uh, people contacted him and you know said look we think you're showing signs that this might be happening to you would you like to come and have some testing done and get some answers and for a long time he didn't want to do that. Uh, uh, it must be a fairly confronting issue to have to face, right? Yeah. And I think he he did that, what I would call typically ki- Kiwi macho thing was, well, if you don't go to the doctors, you can never find out anything's wrong with you. Yeah. Um, so you put your sa- head in the sand and hope for the best. But, uh, but after a while, I think it became ob- obvious to him as his memory issues deteriorated or increased, sorry, um, that he was at a point where he needed answers. He needed to know what was going on in his head. So he went and had this testing done in England. And what I would say, unfortunately, they came back with this diagnosis that we've already talked about. But perhaps surprisingly for for many people, um, it was a a real relief for Carl because he could finally understand what was happening and that he wasn't going mad. He he had a brain condition. Some of the details in your in your piece are. I don't want to linger on this. I don't want this to become you know some voyeuristic kind of thing. But some of the details in this piece are absolutely jarring. There is a story about how you know he he forgot his own child's middle name. Yes, he was on the phone uh, getting a passport for his son, and yeah, the simple task of, of giving the person at the other end of the phone is son's name was beyond him and he talked about how he just spent a long time just racking his brain i think he said it's about 20 25 seconds and in the end he he couldn't couldn't find it brain wasn't working and had to tell the woman on the other end i'm i'm really sorry i've forgotten my son's name and that and that he said described as a significant moment 
for him and perhaps the perhaps the first time where he realized that this was a, a serious issue that wasn't going to go anywhere you know, I followed your reporting for a long time. You, you've done a lot of what I would actually describe as pretty fearless reporting on the health risks of rugby. And one of the reasons that I would describe it as fearless is that you get a huge amount of backlash. Echoing that mindset that you described earlier, that Kiwi macho mindset of toughen up, you'll be right. Being able to take these knocks is um, part of the job. It makes you a man. Increasingly, that perspective is just looking more and more and more outrageously misplaced. Yeah, and a lot of the um, backlash that people like Carl and Steve Thompson and these guys get now, which I would put in that same category, is they're saying, well, you know what you signed up for. You were well paid for it. Um, don't go crying now that, you know, the worst outcomes happened. These guys did not sign up for brain disease. They were not aware that, you know, down the track, they were increasing their chances of brain disease by playing a high volume of rugby. They thought that as long as, you know, you had a significant head knock and you recovered, you would be fine. So I, I kind of reject all that. What I would say is, um, and you might have to edit this out, but this macho bullshit, uh, you know, we've, we should be long past that now. And we need to talk just passionately about it. And uh, look, I know rugby is a passionate sport and that's counterintuitive in a lot of ways to talk dispassionately about it. But I think you have to in this in this case, if you want rugby to flourish. That is an interesting thing, isn't it? The idea of, you know, you know what you signed up for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the more that we learn about this, the more valid that argument almost becomes. Yes. But I guess the thing is that this is about informed consent really, isn't it? It is. And also that informed, the informed part of that is relatively recent. Mm. Like we were talking about before, you know, we're probably talking about 2010 onwards. Uh, again, I keep, I keep saying that, but the guys that signed up and knew what they were signing up for when rugby went professional knew they'd end their careers with creaking knees. They knew they'd probably struggle some days to get out of because their backs would be so sore and their necks would be stiff and they'd be arthritic in their shoulders. I don't think it's actually fair to say that they knew that they would have long-term cognitive issues. What is World Rugby's perspective on all of this? Uh, it's difficult to know because they won't contact, uh, they won't comment on any of the legal proceedings. They did say that, uh, I know the, the lawsuit has been drawn up on, um, it's a fairly nebulous term, on behalf of uh, more than 150 rugby players. But at this point, we believe there's only nine actual claimants on the suit. Uh, that, that might increase. Uh, but World Rugby have consistently said that they won't comment on the legal proceedings, but player welfare is their number one priority. Uh, they have made proactive steps to try and make the game safer and that they have you know, massive concern and empathy for these players that are struggling post-career. When it comes to you know medical perspectives, is there relative sort of agreement on on this from doctors and so, and so on and so forth? You know, are there holdouts? Is there is there still debate? Yes, there is still debate about it, and I think increasingly, most people find it very very hard to deny a causative link between rugby and brain disease. But there will be people that you know, say, well, we can't know this for certain. There's no longitudinal studies. The science is evolving. It's the kind of narrative that you 
you hear you've heard across different sports all the time. So yes, there is holdouts and, and there's a reasonably prominent body, I think it's called the Concussion and Sport Group, and their consensus statement on concussion and sport is always a very watered down and frustrated, sort of mealy mouth statement that's discredited by a lot of people in that medical science community. But unfortunately, it is still the standard that a lot of very high profile sports bodies that is their guideline. So there's a lot of frustration in that community. Uh, there's still dissent, but I think it's fair to say that increasingly people are making that link and kind of determining it. It's not just a correlation, it's a causation. If a link is established here, can it continue to exist as a sport? Oh, absolutely. I think it can. And um, a lot of people don't realise this, but I actually love the game. Mm. And I would, I would hate to see it harmed irreparably because I believe that there are still massive benefits to playing rugby but they do need to look at like some fundamental things the training you mentioned there should be very very little need for full contact training now Uh, length of season and sheer volume of games just needs to be addressed and referencing Carl Heyman again he told me that when he first made the All Blacks he went to a big big players association meeting and the top of the agenda was a global calendar and the volume of rugby Mm. close to 20 years later what's still at the top of rugby's agenda finding a global calendar and reducing the volume of rugby there's that and there's also the very vexed issue uh, which I have feelings on but they're not necessarily shared by other people which is when to start with contact rugby Mm. now um, I get a lot of grief for my views on this but I I just do not see the need for preteens to be playing contact rugby. And I know that's arbitrary. And my response to that was, well, you know, if you're going to have age limits, you've got to pick one somewhere. Specifically talk about people like um, Carl and Steve and that. I hope they do have long lives, but I think we've got to accept that, you know, are partially compromised at the very least now the the rest of their lives and the likelihood is the extreme probability is that the sport that they loved has contributed to it. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Dylan Cleaver. Matewa.